It was a great privilege to uh, be here today. Um, I thank Wes and the session for giving me the privilege to be able to come and share God's word with you. Um, gotten to know Wes a little bit through um, our connection with the Twin Lakes Fellowship. It's a great opportunity to be able to meet other pastors. It's a great privilege that uh, we get to gather together on this Lord's Day, the same as saints all around the world are doing. As we gather, we sing praises, we worship, we pray, and we hear God's word preached. And so with that, I want to give you a greeting from my church and from the saints in New Jersey. There are a few, um, and uh, it is, is great to be with you. Um, with that, let me open in prayer. Our good and gracious King, we thank you for the many blessings that you have poured out on us. We thank you for the word that you have given to us. Father, I pray that as I preach your word, your word would be proclaimed, that you would be glorified, um, that much would be made of you. Father, we thank you that while the grass withers and the flower fades, the word of the Lord stands forever. Amen. Now, I think Wes said I get like, what, 60 minutes? Is that about how long? I'll, I'll, I'll make this deal with you. I'll try to keep it interesting, and you try to act like you're interested. If, uh, if you go see movies, um, and a, a lot of movies, if they're based on a, um, a historical events, then at the end, as the credits are rolling, often what they'll do is they'll flash up. Here's kind of what happens. They try to tie up some of those loose ends. Um, if you watch Pixar movies, and if you have kids, you have probably watched these, and if not, then they're still enjoyable stories. Almost always through the credits of the Pixar movies, they tie up some of these loose ends in the, the movie Cars. Um, one of the things that's mentioned early in the movie is Mater wants to ride in a helicopter, and McQueen says, yeah, sure, we'll make that happen. And so what happens in the credits, then, is you actually see Mater getting to ride in a helicopter. At Toy Story 3, it Kind of the big emotional ending as Andy is giving up the toys of his childhood. Um, the final scenes are showing, um, giving the, the toys to Bonnie. And now these toys have a new lease on life as Bonnie's toys. And they tie up some of these loose ends of seeing these toys being able to bond now to Bonnie. And then also you see some of the toys that were left at the Sunnyside Daycare and how that has happened now that Lotso hugging. I do have kids, so you know, some of you are like, what is he talking about? As Lotso is now gone and how the, the new orders um, is in at the daycare. Movies tie up some of these things. They want to tie up some of these loose ends. It's the finishing of unfinished business. Um, what you have here in Second Kings chapter 9, I'm going to go ahead and take it as a granted that most people are not super familiar with the plot line that runs through First and Second Kings. Um, what's happening here in 2 Kings 9 is some of the tying up of loose ends. Now, some of these loose ends have come from earlier. Um, in 1 Kings chapter 19, Elijah has left Jezreel, the city of Jezreel, and he's ended up in a cave at Mount Horeb. Now, the reason he's there is after 1 Kings 18, this is a story you may be familiar with, Elijah uh, confronts the prophets of Baal. And by confront, I mean slaughter. Um, they have the contest on Mount Carmel, um, and he says, yeah, you guys call down your gods and burn up this offering. If, if you do it, you win. But if I do it, I win. Of course, they fail. Elijah taunts them throughout the whole event. Is some great smack talk. Um, 
And then at the end of all of that, Elijah calls down and God just burns up all of the offering. Now he goes to Jezreel, the the rains begin, the drought is over, the rains begin to fall, and he goes to Jezreel, and he's going to see Ahab and Jezebel. And when he's there, things don't go exactly as well as they'd hoped. So Elijah leaves Jezreel, he ends up at Mount Horeb, the Mount of God, and he is in a cave, and God approaches him and speaks to him at this point. Now Elijah explains his faithfulness to the Lord, and he explains the apostasy of the people of Israel. He says, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant. They've thrown down your altars. They've killed your prophets with the sword. So things things are not good in Israel. Things are very not good in Israel right now. And, And Ahab, his evil is unprecedented in the land. The house of Ahab is unprecedented evil. Many have done evil, but in comparison to Ahab, all the other guy's sin was was like nothing. So the Lord promises that he is going to avenge his name. God will avenge his name. He's going to strike down the unfaithful. And so he tells Elijah, he says, go back. I want you to go back. And what's going to happen is I'm going to anoint Hazael. He's going to become king of Syria, and whoever he strikes down, whoever he doesn't strike down, you're going to anoint Jehu to be king of Israel. And then whoever Jehu doesn't strike down, you're going to anoint Elisha to be the prophet. They're going to strike down everyone who's not faithful. So where are we with this? What is the unfinished business? Elisha is now the prophet in 2 Kings chapter 9. He's been doing the work of the prophet. He's been declaring God's word and God's will for the people. In chapter 8, just before this, he meets Hazael. And he ends up anointing Hazael as king. And Hazael becomes the king of Syria when his boss, Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, is sick. And Hazael helps him with his illness by, like, suffocating him. Um, And so then he becomes king. And so now we're still left waiting for Jehu. Um, This is the passage today. Jehu is to be anointed king. It's to tie up some of these loose ends that have been lingering since 1 Kings chapter 19. Now, the other things that still have to happen, Jezebel still must face judgment. 1 Kings chapter 21, um, that prophecy in 1 Kings 21 was that Ahab would be destroyed. Ahab had sold himself out to all that was evil in the sight of the Lord. Ahab would die, and he did. Um, When Ahab was at war, the text tells us that some random archer takes aim at random, and he just lets the arrow fly. But there is no randomness with God, and the, the arrow finds its way to the very weak point of Ahab's armor, and it pierces him through in the chariot. Ahab is struck, and he ends up bleeding out in his chariot. And the prophecy that had been said was fulfilled. The dogs will lick up his blood, and that's what happened with Ahab. I know this is a cheery picture right before lunch. But Jezebel, the prophecy about her has not yet been fulfilled. Elijah said, the dog shall eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel. That's not happening. That'll come soon. So if you read ahead... You'll see this in chapters 9 and 10. 
The prophecy is that all of Ahab's house would be snuffed out. That everyone attached to Ahab would die. If, if you were a part of Ahab's house and you were in the city, um, that the beast would come and eat you. And then if you were out in the fields, the birds of the heavens would come and eat you. If you were part of Ahab's house, what was going to happen is you were going to feed the animals, but not in like the good petting zoo kind of way, right? So the key point for all this background, God is faithful to fulfill his word. Many promises had been made before, but if God says it, it will be done. God created all things out of nothing simply by the word of his power. When God declares something, it happens. And so the words we have in Scripture, then, they are true, they are trustworthy, they are certain, they are sure. Psychology, science, sociology, every theory made by man is prone to change. Now, sometimes they accurately are able to express some sort of truth, but sometimes they don't. But what we see is God's word is always and forever true, so we can trust this word. We can believe it. We can live by it. So all of that is by way of background. So let's actually look at the text, 2 Kings chapter 9. Now, there is uh, something here that I think should jump off the pages, but it probably doesn't. Um, if you have read through the stories of Elijah and Elisha, then you'll see this happen again and again. But often it's one of these things that quietly slips into the background of the text and our eyes just read right over it. It's this. It is the simple obedience of God's people to his word. A simple obedience of God's people to his word. The young prophet that Elisha calls, obeys. Jehu obeys. Jehu's men, all of them respond in immediate and full obedience. Elisha calls this, um, this young prophet, there's a group of prophets that Elisha had been mentoring called the sons of prophets. And Elisha calls one of these young prophets to him and he tells him, he says, tie up your garment. This means get ready. I'm going to ask you to go somewhere and to go quickly. Tie up your garment, take the flask of oil, and I'm going to send you to Ramoth Gilead to do this thing. And when you get there, you're going to find Jehu, pull him out of that group and tell him, thus says the Lord. Now this is, this is prophet speak. Right? When a prophet comes and he says, thus says the Lord, then the prophet is indicating that what he is saying, he's not saying of his own account, even of his own volition, but he's speaking on behalf of the one who has sent him. This is like, a, uh, like an ambassador. Right? If an ambassador to the United States goes and speaks to uh, the head of some other state, then when they speak in that official capacity, they're not speaking as Joe Blow the ambassador, but they speak on behalf of the U.S. government. It's not his words, but the U.S. government's words. This is much of how a prophet operates. When the prophet says, thus says the Lord, it's not the prophet's words, it's God's words to whoever he is speaking to. 
Elisha tells him, he says, tie up your garment, get the flask of oil, go find Jehu, you're going to anoint him as king. You're going to say, thus says the Lord, I anoint you king. Verse 4. So the young man, the servant of the prophet, went to Ramoth Gilead. Easily read right over that. Think nothing of it. But hear this. He did it. The prophet of God spoke to this other young prophet. He said, go do this. This is what God is calling you to do. And he did it. Elisha called him to do it. And he did. It is simple obedience. Now, the, the prophet, he goes to Jehu. He finds Jehu sitting in the midst of this group of commanders. He calls Jehu out to an inner chamber, and he tells him what Elisha had instructed him to say. He says, thus says the Lord, I'm going to anoint you as king of Israel. And then he does it. Verse 6, Jehu does not object. He doesn't question. He doesn't reject God's word. What he's telling him is basically, I'm going to do a coup, and you're going to be the head of it. And he's like, yeah, thus says the Lord, sure, let's go for it. Thirdly, the obedience of Jehu's men to Jehu's new authority. Verse 13, this information about Jehu's anointing is relayed to them. They hear that the Lord has spoken. And Jehu tells them what the prophet said. And he repeats this. He says, thus says the Lord, I'm anointing you king of Israel. And what do they do? It says they respond in haste. Without delay, they respond. They blow the trumpet. It's a sign of the king. They take their garments off and lay them down on the bare floor so that the king doesn't have to walk on the bare floor. They proclaim Jehu is king. They recognize that authority immediately, and they quickly submit to it. Now, all of this, if you've read the gospel, should be somewhat reminiscent of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Right? As Palm Sunday, we celebrate this as they wave the palm branches, they lay them down because the king doesn't walk on the bare floor. They shout out Hosanna. They shout out this proclamation that he is the king he's entering in. We'll have a little bit more on this in a minute. But what the people of Jehu, what his men do, is they respond immediately to this idea that thus says the Lord, and they obey without question. So we can't simply gloss over these examples of simple obedience because because this is what's needed in our lives. Every time we see thus says the Lord in this text, It's followed up with an example of simple, ordinary, faithful obedience. Life is not lived out in those four to five really big moments. right? You can think of like the big, um, if your life is like a tent, you can think of the big tent pole kind of moments, right? Maybe your marriage, maybe a graduation, some sort of major life event. Life is not lived in those major events. Life is really lived in not the peaks and valleys of life, but it's lived in the simple, plain, and ordinary events of life. Obedience and faithfulness to God is best seen not in those peaks and in those valleys, but obedience to God is best seen in the ordinary, mundane, regular, 
thousands of moments of everyday life. Because if you succeed in those moments, in being faithful and being obedient to God's word, in those regular, normal, mundane, boring parts of life, you're going to succeed in both the peaks and in the valleys. But if you fail in those ordinary, regular events, then that's probably what's going to happen in the big moments as well. We need simple obedience to God's word. Because God's word is the only reliable source of instruction. But that's not going to stop any number of people or things from trying to tell you what is true. Um, I know in New Jersey, we just came off of a... um, an off, off year election. I don't know if you guys had kind of those kind of local, like this is like for board of education and town council and maybe mosquito control and dog catcher kind of elections. Um, only, only three states, I think, in this last election had statewide elections. But, you know, it, it didn't stop the national pundits from spinning even those few statewide elections um, in every which direction. Because today, in this country, we face rampant polarization. Politics has become a zero-sum game. And there's a presidential election coming in 12 months' time, so just buckle up. Now, if politics is a zero-sum game, meaning everything is either a total loss or it's a total victory, then the stakes of these elections are actually inflated. And when the stakes are raised, urgency is raised, and politics ends up being positive as a, uh, an emergency life or death situation. And when this happens, fear becomes the primary and most powerful motivation. Fear is going to be wielded like a club in our national discourse. For example, the climate is in crisis. We must reduce emissions, we must reduce our population, or we will all die. The liberals, they're stripping Christians of all their rights, and they're going to hurt us all up. We have to stop them, or we'll all die. Illegal immigrants are pouring over our borders. They're lawless, evil, dangerous. We must stop them, or we'll all die. The police are hunting and killing minorities with impunity in our cities. This must be stopped or we'll all die. This is, this is, I mean, we could go on and on. This is not a right or left issue. This is a cultural issue. And it's because we are all hyped up on social media and niche profit-driven journalism like a teenager chugging Mountain Dew. What generates clicks? What generates subscription? What generates ad revenue? That's what gets pushed out there in a zero-sum game, and it's all driven by fear. And how is that fear assuaged? Where is our hope as a nation? According to the pundits, it's in politics. Hope and change. Make America great again feel the burn, whatever it is that you might have, but it's all PR, it's all marketing, and it is all driven by fear. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. All of those things I mentioned are issues that need to be addressed 
by the faithfulness to the gospel. We need to be engaged in our communities and in the world in order to address issues like the environment and like justice and religious freedom. But the point is this, is that in the coming 12 months and beyond, there will be a myriad of voices stoking fear and panic and trying to assuage that fear and panic with politics. Vote for me. I'll solve your problem. If you don't vote for me, it's all going to fall apart and everyone will die in a horrible, painful death. I approve this message. Right? That is the subtext of modern politics, is it not? Part of the problem with this is that we are looking to politics to solve problems that it was never meant to address. Because these are deeper issues in the human heart. These are deeper issues in our collective worldview, and they cannot be solved in Washington or Tallahassee or wherever the levers of power may be pulled. As Christians, we need to look to God's word in these situations. What do we learn when we look at God's word with respect to politics? Well, bluntly, from this passage, politics is futile. Now, perhaps that's too strong, but perhaps we could use some overcorrection in this area. When the young prophet addresses Jehu, he tells him that... uh, He's going to go, he he tells him what's going to happen to Ahab's house. In verse 8, he says, The whole house of Ahab shall perish, and I will cut off from Ahab every male, bond or free, in Israel. Then he gives something of a refresher lesson of politics and political history in Israel. He says, I will make the house of Ahab like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, And like the house of Baasha, the son of Ahijah. Now at the risk of of going over things that we're probably all super well aware of, like the house of Jeroboam and the house of Baasha, um, humor me a little bit as while I refresh our memories on the history. What happened to the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat? Jeroboam was the first king of the northern kingdom, His son Nadab succeeded him as king, and the Lord had pronounced in 1 Kings 14 that the house of Jeroboam would fall because Jeroboam had turned to the Asherim. He had turned to Baalism. He had turned to paganism, and he had rejected God. And this provoked the Lord to anger, and so his son Nadab begins to reign, and in 1 Kings 15.27, Nadab is cut down by Baasha, And all the house of Jeroboam was killed. Not one of them was left. Well, what happens to Baasha, the son of Ahijah? One dynasty falls, another takes its place. 1 Kings 16, after Baasha falls, his son Elah reigns. Now Elah goes and he gets sloppy drunk in the town of Tizra. While he's there, Zimri, his commander, conspires against him. Zimri strikes him down, and then there's another dynasty that goes down the drains. Zimri destroyed the whole house of Baasha. He doesn't leave a single one of his male relatives or even of his friends. But Zimri lasts for a total of seven days. After one week of Zimri, 
a guy named Omri comes along and he besieges the town of Tirzah where he's staying. Zimri realizes that he's surrounded. There's no way out. So what does he do? He sets fire to the house he's in and burns him and his whole house up. And so now Omri is in charge. Omri is the father of Ahab. And now that house is going to be cut off. So what does verse 9 tell us about politics? There might be exceptions, but it seems that time after time, rulers rise up, they promise hope, they promise greatness, and just like that, they are cut down. They offer whatever it is necessary so that they can obtain power and prestige and privilege. And perhaps there are honest politicians. Perhaps there are those who truly want to do well. But the ones who do the best work are the ones who realize that they're not the savior of the world or even of a nation. The constant pattern we see in politics is this. Leaders rise and leaders fall. Leaders rise And leaders fall. And yet through it all, God remains. The church remains. God's word remains. Through it all, Jesus Christ still reigns. Listen to this. Remind yourself of this regularly over the next 12 months. If you put your hope in politics, you will be disappointed. And yet God's going to use whatever instrument God chooses to use to bring about his will. Look at verses 7, 8, and 9. Notice the subjects of the verbs in these verses. Verse 7, he says, uh, talking about Jehu, he says, You shall strike down the house of Ahab, so that I, the Lord, may avenge on Jezebel the blood of my servants. I will cut off from Ahab every male. I will make the house of Ahab like the house of Jeroboam. Jehu's a tool. He's just an instrument. It is the Lord who is the main actor in history. Old Testament scholar Ralph Davis, he says, the word of God does not just control history, but the word of God drives history. Now, the passage ends on this announcement that Jehu is king. Elisha's young servant, he's gone with this flask of oil. He pulls Jehu out. He anoints Jehu with oil. Now, this was a sign of God's favor on a person in order for them to fulfill an office to which they had been called. Anointing with oil was a sign of God's blessing, and it was, it was poured out on prophets and on priests, And on kings, it was a sign of God's authority over that person. It was a sign of God's blessing on that person. It was a sign of God's consecration to them. And the picture was like uh, of Psalm 133, where the oil is poured down on Aaron's head and it runs down his beard and to his feet. It's a sign of God being over this person. This, This is what happened with Saul. Saul was anointed, David was anointed king, Solomon was anointed king, and now Jehu is anointed king so that he can be used as God's instrument of judgment on the house of Ahab. That judgment's going to unfold over the next chapter and a half, or the rest of chapter 9, chapter 10. 
What was a king supposed to do? What was the office of a king? Primarily, the office of the king was to defend and to expand the kingdom. The king was to avenge losses inflicted upon a kingdom. And that's what God was calling Jehu to do. Go and avenge my name. Cut off, strike down Ahab. His house is wicked. It has defiled God's people. It must be removed and removed completely. Now, the anointed of the Lord is going to fulfill God's purpose. Now, it's important for us to realize when it comes to this idea of taking vengeance for God's name. God's anointed will do that. We don't. We don't have the right or authority to take vengeance in the name of the Lord. When we are wronged, instead we trust the Lord to right the scales of his divine economy. God will take vengeance against all sin. The anointed king of God will rule and defend his people. He will conquer all his and our enemies. Now, when we talk about the anointed of God, we're referring to a Hebrew term. The Hebrew term is Mashiach. Now, from this Hebrew term, we get the the word that's probably familiar to you, Messiah. And so when we refer to the term Messiah, we're simply noting that the Messiah is the anointed one of God. The Greek term for Messiah is the Greek word Christos. Christ is not Jesus' name. It's his title. Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah, the anointed one. Jesus fulfills these three offices of a prophet, of a priest, and of a king. Now, the anointing of Jehu as king is to execute God's vengeance and wrath against sin. And in that capacity, it points forward to a greater fulfillment of a king who is coming, namely Jesus, as the anointed king. Now remember, when the commanders of Jehu's army hear that Jehu is now king, they blow the trumpet, they take their cloaks off, lay them on the floor, and they proclaim, Jehu is king. As I mentioned, this should remind us of that triumphal entry of when Jesus entered into Jerusalem and they laid the palm branches on the ground and they announced hosannas that Jesus is the king entering into the city. I I think it's it's just like one of um, a Christian philosopher, theologian, some would consider him one of the greatest of the early church fathers, um, Kanye West. It's just as his new album says, Jesus is king. As king, Jesus will be victorious over all sin and evil. He will lead an army victorious over sin and death and the devil. All sin will be defeated. All enemies of God will be judged. They will be vanquished. They will be destroyed. Moving from Kanye West to Handel. Handel's Hallelujah Chorus captures this end result very well. For the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. The kingdom of this world is become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. King of kings and Lord of lords. 
Hallelujah. The reign of Jesus as king means the death of death. It is the defeat of sin. It is the vindication of God's holiness. It is the vindication of his righteousness. It is the purification of all of creation because Jesus is king. And this sounds really, really great until we realize that we are the enemies of God. We're the enemies of God. We're on the wrong side, right? All along, we're thinking about Jesus the King, and we're thinking like, yeah, go. But we realize we're on the other team. At least that's how Paul puts it in Romans 5.10. He very explicitly and unapologetically calls us the enemies of God. John does this in 1 John chapter 2 when he says the one who denies the Father and the Son, he's not just an enemy of God. He is the very opposite of God. He is anti-Christ. Before we confessed Christ, before we believe by faith, we were enemies of God. Our sin deserved judgment, and our sin deserves wrath, and our sin deserves God's righteous vindication. We deserve to be cut off like Ahab. We deserve to be struck down like all of the house of Ahab. God has laid out a holy standard for us. Now, sometimes we want to think that, well, I don't have to agree with that. You're wrong, but let's put that on the table for a second. If you could record every moral judgment you make, if you had a little moral judgment tape recorder around your neck, and it simply clicked on to record every moral judgment you make, and then you had another one that recorded every moral action you make, If you were to compare your moral actions versus your own moral judgment, you can't fulfill your own law. You would deserve your own justice. The Shorter Catechism in question and answer 26 uses this language when it talks about how does Christ execute the office of a king. And it says, we have been subdued. We have been subdued by King Jesus. We have been translated by him from a domain of darkness into a kingdom of light. This wasn't because we were good enough. It wasn't because we were smart enough and we figured it out. It wasn't because God honored some sort of spark of righteousness or some spark of divine in us. No, it was simply this, because God in his good pleasure reached into the graveyard of humanity. And as he walked among the tombs, he simply reached down and he said, this one. This one, I choose him to life. I choose her to life. I slay death in their heart, and now they belong to me. They are my subjects, and now I reign in their hearts. That is what a victorious King Jesus does. 
But this calls for a response from us. Firstly, we take on his name. One of the most common ways that we tend to identify ourselves is based on what kingdom we belong to, what nation we belong to, what people group we belong to. As those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as king, if he is our king, then our greatest identity is as a subject of the king. We take on his name. When you think about who you are, is this your first thought of your identity? Are you in Christ first and everything else second? Secondly, we must imitate his kingly rule as vice regents. All the way back to the beginning, we are told that we are created in the very image of God and we bear that image. We were created as image bearers of the divine. And every time we are sent out to to multiply and to subdue and dominate the creation, every time a new image bearer is made, the little one that was baptized today, another image bearer is made, another signpost goes up in creation that resembles the maker of heaven and earth, and it is another indication of God saying, all of this belongs to me. Every image bearer you meet is God declaring, I am king. Everywhere you go is a declaration that God as king, God has called us to go out and to exhibit his kingly reign over all the world. That's what we mean when we say we are his vice regents. We reign and rule this world in God's name and in his place as his image bearers. Peter would call us a kingdom of priests. In Revelation 1.5, it said that we are the kings of the earth underneath our great and high king. Revelation 5, he says that we reign under King Jesus. So what is our response? We need to respond first and foremost as a subject of the king. Secondly, we need to exhibit the rule of King Jesus in our life. And we ask ourselves this question, what would King Jesus do? How would he reign in this world? What has he called me to do? And in answering that question, we simply bring it back to the first point. How do we reign Simple, boring, ordinary, mundane obedience. Not just in the big moments of life, but in the thousands of regular, ordinary, boring, mundane moments of our life. Because thus says the Lord. Let's pray. Our good and gracious King, You are kind and you are generous. That you would step into our hearts and subdue us to yourself. Lord, we call those who are currently rebelling against you to submit and obey your good rule. Father, we pray for those who have, that they would exhibit this by knowing whose they are, And by following you in simple and ordinary obedience. Because your rule 
is light and good and brings life and refreshment. We ask this in the name of our great and high King, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.